They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. During the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, I had the same thought. I'm like, am I being oppressed by virtue of not being a Supreme Court justice? I didn't realize this was like an oppression that, that we were all suffering. Who knew? It's an old joke, but when an argue, man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back. This is a very special episode of Strict Scrutiny, where your hosts, I'm Melissa Murray. And I'm Leah Littman. This episode, we have something different in store for you. As a special holiday treat, a stocking stuffer, if you will, we have as our guest the brilliant satirist and humorist Alexandra Petri, columnist at the Washington Post and author of Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why, a collection of essays that covers the surreality of the Trump administration. So welcome to the podcast, Alexandra. Thank you for having me. We want you to tell us, to show us really, um, in a kind of Scrooge-like way, how we can shed these tendencies and actually laugh when we want to cry. So how is it that we can cover the surreal and laugh about the horrible um, as this administration winds down? And we have lots to ask you, um, but the first thing, I mean, it's just a basic thing. How do you do what you do? Like, first, if you could tell us how you got into doing what you do, that would be really informative because as far as I can tell, every time I've sent a resume to the Washington Post, I've gotten no responses. So <laughs> how did you land this incredible gig? Well, I lucked out, actually. I, I started by applying to intern at the Post uh, like a decade ago, literally like over a decade, which is wild. I'm like the rare millennial who's only had one job for the past 10 years, which is just strange and alarming. But no, so I applied to intern for the opinion section and I, I wound up being the editorial intern, which is nifty because then you get to write all the editorials, not all of them, but some of them about topics like, you know, should we put a stop sign at this intersection and like what's going on with the internet and so forth. Just a, a broad range of topics, stop signs to the internet. But uh, I kept being like, I, I would like to write things with jokes in them under my own name. And every so often I would do that and they would let me. And then they kept just sort of gradually, I, I just sort of refused to leave basically. Like they just d continued not firing me and continued letting me work. And suddenly I had a column <laughs> this is not a good. We all like you know. I, I, I it's so sad because that, I get that, all these lovely emails. That's basically how tenure works. Like how tenure works. In the no, I get all these like, lovely emails from like you know high school students or like college students who are like so like give me career advice. I'm like I wish I could. I <laughs> I know this is not how this usually happens. I'm very sorry. <laughs> There's a lesson there. I mean, yeah. sort of be persistent, be authentic, like you wanted to be your authentic self and you were and they liked it and you just refused to leave. I, th I think that's a model yeah. for lots of people. Yeah, you got you to gotta chain yourself to the door 
and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I think it could have worked for some chiefs of staff at the White House. They just tried it. <laughs> could have worked. Um, all right. So we have just general questions about this entire four years where you've been unbelievably productive. You have actually been the Beyonce of newspaper writing because you've taken the incredible lemons of this administration and you've made fantastic lemonade out of it. So how did you do this? I think we should stop after that compliment because it's all going to be downhill from... I mean, we're starting it here. It's the P-Try Hive. We're doing it. Okay. How did you do this? I feel like the bonus and the downside of having a job where you have to pay attention to the news is on the one hand, like, I'm the sort of person who would constantly be staring at a newspaper anyway, but since I'm like, well, it's my job to obsess it over what's going on, I at least have a place where I can go and put the screams and I can just type them out and they'll become a column. So it was nice to feel like, I know I'm obliged to scream into the void. That's my job. That's what I have to do. So the biggest problem for the past four years wasn't like, oh, no, what am I going to write about today? It was like, how am I going to possibly write about the hundreds of things that are going on today, all of which are like alarming, none of which are particularly funny, and plenty of which are deeply absurd. Because like the things that you would normally write about, like back, you know, when in the before times, (laughs) in the before times, when there was like that whole week of like tan suit news cycle, and everyone was just like, what about this tan suit? I believe I called that the audacity of taupe. (laughs) That's great. Thank you. (laughs) I feel so seen. (laughs) So, you know, we thought we would kind of use your book, um, Nothing is Wrong and Here's Why, which is a collection of essays about the Trump administration to kind of uh, shine a light on how you can laugh about the truly horrible, terrible, no good, very bad things that are happening and do so in a way that kind of makes people appreciate um, exactly why they are no good, very bad and terrible. Um, So uh, if you don't mind, like, I'm just going to kind of run through some of my favorite essays from the book um, and then watch you react uncomfortably as I pay you some compliments. So, you know. Oh, um, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, one one of the essays that kind of fell into this bucket um, for me was the Why Won't This Career Die piece, um, which isn't about the Trump administration, but is about Me Too and the reemergence of men accused of misconduct. So... You write, she felt bad for the career. It was not the career's fault, the things the man had done. The career had been a source of joy. And it just so brilliantly satirizes the idea that there is this disconnect and space between the person who did these bad things and their career. And it also like pokes at how women are described as killing the man's career when the career never dies. Um And I just love this because, you know, we have talked on this show about some judges who were accused of misconduct and how, you know, women who accuse them, you know, killed their careers and whatnot. And most recently, one of those men who resigned from the federal judiciary after being accused of misconduct, Judge Kaczynski, had his writing featured in a book by another judge as like the epitome of good legal writing. And it's like still featured at law firm events. And it's just wild to see this like personification and anthropomorphization of like these men's careers. And you just so perfectly capture like 
so much of the insanity of this Me Too process and the idea that Me Too has gone too far. I think you really hit on the fact that people tend to anthropomorphize these careers where they're just always like, but what about his career? As though there's like this sort of poor, maybe furry creature, somehow sort of weak and vulnerable that this woman is going and really doing damage to. And that like, it's being given equal weight she doesn't have like a career that's distinct from herself. She gets to have just like sort of be a person. It's like, oh, no, it's like, what about her career? It's it's always like, she's just doing this to advance herself, which is bizarre also. Uh, Getting to deal with it as sort of the horror formula that it was. Because I feel like at the center of a lot of horror sort of stories and movies is this idea that you're like in a reality where nobody believes what you're seeing and you're seeing something that nobody else is seeing. And it feels sort of that continual sort of, am I detached from reality? Right. When you're looking at a lot of this like, Me Too stuff, when people are sitting there saying like, but what about his career? Like, oh, what a promising young man. He's like 53. And you're like, this is not a promising young man. And also he harmed someone with his actions. Like, there should be some consequences for that. I-, I enjoyed getting to try to use that trope to explain why I thought that it was bad. <laughs> that is like such but, a like wonderful parallel between the idea of like the horror movie and you can't believe what is happening and you kind of like look around at your friends and you're like is that insane I think that's insane right like what it, it's just yeah yeah <laughs> that's why we had to yeah. start this podcast because we were right. looking around we we're like this is insane but no everyone else is like it's fine and then we got to the podcast we were like okay good you think it's insane too right yeah, that's <laughs> the best so. feeling in the world is like just making eye contact with somebody else and be like you're oh you're also seeing this I'm not the only one seeing this it's yes. yeah that's a whole faculty <laughs> meeting right there that's a faculty meeting vibe. <laughs> One of my favorite essays is, um, this is like perhaps the best title ever um, an essayist could offer, but Keep Scott Pruitt Moist is my particular (laughs) favorite. Um, And so I I remember this, when there was all of this news coverage, it was like, I guess, right at the beginning of the Trump administration when he, as you say in the book, nominated all the best people to be in his cabinet. And among them was Scott Pruitt, who was nominated to head the Environmental Protection Agency. And it came out that he was getting his staff to basically drive him around D.C. to the Ritz-Carlton to collect bottles of lotion from the hotel. And it, it was just like, it was like, bananas like oh like but but it it was so mundane and trivial but yet spoke volumes and and having now with you know four years of distance it was almost like like prescient and like the lotion was the least of our worries but yet encapsulated everything the staffers on the hunt for the expensive lotion to keep scott pruitt moisturized (laughs) no i I agree. I feel like the the sad thing about that is twofold. A that like that was like the minor scandal, but it was like a scandal that weird is like the third or fourth story. It's like oh he's goodness. driving around to get have his staffers get him moisturizing lotion. Little lotion. It's like how good is that lotion even? I don't know. I feel like it's in a bottle and it smells nice. I don't know. It's so inefficient. Like I mean, just like just order yourself a vat of cocoa butter if like moisturizing <laughs> is the issue. But it, it, it's it's this lotion that he. I mean, it's very specific that he wants this lotion. No, exactly. Yeah, it's like clearly he's not like moisturization is not first and foremost on his mind. So I'm like, I, I know what it is. He's a crustacean. The, the funny thing when I kept working on that, I'm like, you know, this will be good for whenever. Like it, it, this this can go whenever. And then. Like the day that he was like, suddenly he was quitting and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to, so I, I like literally like the, either the day that he quit 
was what I posted or like right after he quit, it, it posted. That was the thing about this administration. You had to jump on it while you could. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, people, it, like, like you could have gone on vacation and missed Scaramucci's entire tenure. Yeah, but also I kind of yearn for the days when the scandals of this administration were federal officials driving around searching for Ritz-Carlton moisturizer rather than trying to overturn an election. Like it's it's kind of making me nostalgic a little bit. But it was no. a slow build. It right. was a slow build. <laughs> right. And you can see the through line from right. the lotion to the of the election. Yeah. yeah, no, it's like the whole boiling a frog thing where it's like, well, if we've accepted moisturizing Scott Pruitt, we can get from there to the four seasons total landscaping. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We've actually tried to cover the election related litigation that we were just alluding to and do so in kind of like a lighthearted way because it is so absurd. And so we did dramatic readings of some of the most <laughs> insane portions of these yes. legal filings, you know, because like it's funny, but also like these people are trying to pull off a coup and they would do it if they could. And you actually had a recent essay about this that was, you know, very much in line with the books, you know, nothing is wrong. And here is why, where you say, you know, the people trying to overturn the election are very bad at it. And like, that's a reason why we can kind of like, not worry. It's difficult because if you could just, if this were Veep, because everyone's always likening it to Veep, because it's like, well, in Veep, there's sort of you know, it, it's something you have to watch on your TV and turn it off and no one's affected by it. And which is a thrilling feeling when you're watching something in government go terribly wrong. Because in this case, it's like, oh, they're trying to overturn the election, literally the votes of millions upon millions of people. And they're very bad at it. It's kind of funny to watch. But as usual with the sort of bubbling horror, it's like, but you can't drop that. It's got my family in it. And so it's like, it's hilarious, but it's also deeply unfunny because he, he doesn't he's not like this is a hilarious joke that i'm playing right. like that will clearly have no consequences he's hoping it'll work yeah or and hoping something will happen if it's a joke like all of the kind of state level officials you know pitching this litigation and the federal officials like supporting it like they're not in on the joke i guess like <laughs> yeah no it's the whole thing with like the, the bully is always like oh no it's joking can't you take a joke like right. after you've been like bullied within an inch have you just life. been punched in the face and it's like yeah <laughs> That was a good one. Another theme in the book that's um, I, I think comes out really well in many of the essays is sort of gender and just the difficulties of being a woman in spaces where you're not expected to be or historically you haven't been. And, you know, you talk about in, in one essay playing the woman card, reaping the rewards of the woman card. And you say it entitles you to a sizable discount on your earnings wherever you go, which obviously is not the case. And then you talk about uh, the way women are in particular circumstances. So famous quotes, um, like you take these very famous quotes that we all should understand, and then you sort of play them out again as if a woman were saying them. So for example, give me liberty or give me death, you say, Dave, um, if I could, I, I, I just really feel like if we had liberty, it would be terrific. Um, and the alternative would be awful. Um, you know, like, it just strikes me, I know, that we should probably have liberty. Like, and that's how the woman would say it. Um, and these are, I think, these are dead on. Um, I just was just in a Zoom workshop with um, some young women academics, and almost every intervention was prefaced with, I'm not an expert in this, but I thought, like, this may sound crazy, but I thought, and finally I put in the chat to one of them, 
please stop discrediting yourself. I mean, you're either inviting people to discredit you or just calling attention to something that no one would have identified to begin with. But like, what's going on here? Like, why do women do this? Do you see this in your own work? Is this something you're responding to in the newsroom? Um, Or just generally in society, the discrediting of women's thoughts and women internalizing that too? Yeah, I think it's complicated because part of it is that when you start opening your mouth in a room, you're trying to achieve something, which is like, ideally, the people in the room will listen to you. And so the re- I don't think it's like, oh, like women are bad and foolish for like talking in this way. And like they're undervaluing themselves. I mean, to a degree, it is that because like, that that's what it sounds like coming out of your mouth. But it's also like, they realize that if they just say things like they know stuff, then people get weirded out by that. Like, it's the response that they've gotten when they've been more assertive, I think, that leads people to say stuff. Like, one of the biggest arguments my husband and I will have, like, just like not really arguing, but sort of pointing out is like, he'll just say something. He'll be like, that song is bad. And I'll be like, I don't like that song. And it's like, that's the way we say exactly the same thought. But if society's like, your opinions are true versus like, oh, like, that's what you think. And isn't that nice? The way you present what you think changes. And sometimes I wonder if we wouldn't be better off if more men were like, you know maybe Deborah, I've got a thought, but I'm not actually an expert on this. And like, if everybody were just like very clear about like, what are their thoughts and what are their true facts to which they're scaffolding those thoughts. But it would also lead to a certain amount of inefficiency. So I feel like there's a, there's a middle ground to be located somewhere in there. Yeah, I think that's right. And like along the lines of like women trying to get things done when they are talking, like some of that is in reaction to a perceived felt need to make themselves seem less threatening to men. And so they can't couch their statements in terms of truth, fact, declarations, because, you know, otherwise they would be perceived as like bitchy or aggressive or, you know, whatever the term would be. Well, I mean, this is the perennial problem, I think, that women of color experience. And Simone Sanders had this tweet yesterday when she noted that you know, when she comes into the room with a low cut top and she's curvy and she's got her nails done and she's wearing makeup, um, people don't expect her to be able to offer really trenchant analysis of these ideas. And she was just like, um, these nails are bedazzled, but my brain is not. Like, this is all <laughs> completely together. And so many women responded to this and were like, yes, that's exactly like, you know, and I think we have that in academia yeah. too, Leah. I mean, the whole idea that, you know, if you, like fashion, if you like, you know, clothing, you're somehow frivolous or not serious about ideas um, in any event. Um, It's such an interesting sort of delicate balance that you have to thread between being likable on the one hand, being credible on the other, but not too credible because then you're unlikable. And I mean, you really capture it in that essay where it's like, these are, these are things women do. Give me liberty. Well, I mean, is liberty important? I mean, I think liberty would be good. What do you think about the liberty? Much yeah, we all agree. <laughs> no, I feel like I, there was a study once that said that like when people are trying to pre- present themselves as less threatening, they try to sort of really crank down the, the slider on their intelligence. And so I, I feel like that it, it could also be part of that. I feel like maybe it's part of partially that like people are trying to seem more approachable and less threatening. And so it's weird how people calibrate themselves on the sliders. Like, did you all see Queen's Gambit, speaking of? Uh, because I, I feel like the most enjoyable escapist element of that, other than like the point where all of her like ex-boyfriends got in a room together and were like, let's figure out how to do the chess together, just amicably, which is like a dream, was just that, like she got to just sort of be in the world and people were like, oh yes, like 
you're a lady that's cool but she could like fashion like I'm just like wow like this is like the bizarro 60s I never knew I wanted and I think part of it also somebody was saying like the author was a man and he never realized that like all of all of the problems you would actually encounter in these scenarios and so he just wrote what turned out to be like an escapist fantasy and I'm like (laughs) honestly (laughs) maybe not wrong it was sort of madman, but without like Don Draper trying to sleep with everyone and with chess. Yeah, no, and, and being like overwhelmed by her skill and like, yeah, let's help yeah, get you right. ahead. And I will come and read chess books to you and not make sexual advances unless you'd like me to. It's like, <laughs> all right. Uh, little, little things like that that I guess this author just took for granted. So another theme in the book uh, is kind of how to cover reality when reality is surreal. Um, So like, how do you satirize like what is happening around you when that already feels kind of insane? Um, So one of those essays, uh, to me was actually about the Supreme Court and specifically about the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings um, in the essay, you know, how dare you do this to Brett Kavanaugh, um, which is about, you know, if Brett does not secure a lifetime appointment, this country will be in shambles. This is his birthright. You know, are you going to believe her America over him, America? This is oppression, you know, to be denied power over others. And part of what was so striking for me going back and reading this essay is that This idea that Brett Kavanaugh had been somehow egregiously wronged by airing the accusations of Dr. Blasey Ford actually came up as a justification that Republican senators used as a reason why they had to confirm Justice Amy Coney Barrett, even while the election was underway and against Justice Ginsburg's wishes. So like here again, like you are mocking what they are saying, but like they're actually saying it. And it was just really wild for me to go back and revisit that essay for that reason. It it was funny because during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, I had the same thought. I'm like, am I being oppressed by virtue of not being a Supreme Court justice? I didn't realize this was like an oppression that that we were all suffering. Who knew? Um, But it it is wild because sort of yesterday's satire is today's like genuine arguments being put forward in uh, the course of a confirmation hearing or on the Senate floor or whatnot. Because I, I think you see that also with like a lot of the sort of Bush era satire with like, you know, the Daily Show or the Colbert Report, where she's like, oh, people are just saying these things now. Like you, you thought that maybe if you like showed how if you heightened it to 11, it would just be completely absurd. It would shame people. And the answer is no, they just decided to go for it. Right. I mean, like this is in some ways what we're seeing about um, the, you know, Trump administration's response to the election, given that before the election occurred, you know, President Trump was always saying, you know, there isn't. I'm not going to commit to a smooth transition of power. I won't accept the results of the election, like, unless I win. And people were like, okay, but he doesn't actually mean that. Um, And it was silly to worry about that. But then it turns out, like, actually, that was kind of true. And it's just, it's really wild to see that kind of, again, just like playing out before our eyes. Yeah, no, when people tell you they're not going to accept the results of the election, believe them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Can we go back to Brett Kavanaugh for another minute? There, There was another essay that was timed September 19th, 2018, although it does not mention Brett Kavanaugh by name, but it it seems to be Kavanaugh adjacent in terms of timeline. And that was some interpersonal verbs conjugated by gender. And so if I could do a dramatic reading for the listeners, because I thought this was both funny, but also really poignant in its way too. So this is the last part of the essay. We cannot know what happened. She does not know what happened. He knows what happened. Nothing happens. Nothing happened. 
Something happened to her. He did nothing. This is how it always happens. This is how a thing he did becomes something that happened to her. This is how something he did becomes something that happens. This is how this keeps happening. I thought this was like the most moving essay. It was like sort of captured the absurdity of, of the whole question. Like, you know, who, who to believe? How did we talk about it? And then, of course, whether it's 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to have this conversation again because this is how this keeps happening. I mean, words can be such a powerful tool for actually shedding light on what's happening, but they can equally work to disguise what's happening. And I think in the way we talk about Me Too and sexual assault, they're often used to obscure what happened because you get this very passive sentence construction in which like people are able to hide all kinds of horrors and you don't see like the responsibility of the sentence being cl- placed clearly on the mm-hmm. active party there. And so I thought it was as good a time as any to try to dive into the language and be like, let's at least like make explicit what we're doing. Because sometimes if you can point out that there's like, oh, there's a whole grammar for this and we've just been talking around it in this very specific way, then at least people will, will get to see it the next time they do it and it'll become less of a thing. I feel like there's there's other things that everyone always sort of talks around, but like enough people have started noticing that when, when you do the elision, people are like, oh, wait a second, you're doing that thing again. Like remember like a few years ago, um, maybe months, I, I truly have no conception of time. It could be literally any point when everyone was always like, someone made a racially tinged remark. And it's like, what was in the remark? <laughs> How tinged? Like, and I feel like people have gotten better at just being like, that was a racist remark. Like, it took some doing, and it still needs to take doing, but, like, that particular evasive construction, at least, has gotten lampooned often. Well, probably because you wrote an essay about it. Right. No, not what just to call me, like, racist remarks people. instead of calling them racist remarks. <laughs> a very helpful field guide. <laughs> Like, well, you, you gave a great list. Racially tinged was one of the options you could use for racist remarks when you don't want to actually call them racist remarks. You could also say they are very fine remarks, heritage-loving remarks. Economically <laughs> anxious remarks. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so one other essay that I wanted to highlight that's kind of at the intersection of, you know, the court, gender, um, and Justice Kavanaugh, you know, was also about the Kavanaugh hearing. But it was um, – concerning a statement that Dr. Blasey Ford made um, where she said, I was wondering whether I would just be jumping in front of a train that was headed to where it was headed anyway, and that I would just be personally annihilated. And the essay was just called, it is very difficult to get the train to stop. Um, And here, you know, the train is very, very urgent. It is moving a man's career forward. You know, again, gesturing at kind of what we were talking about earlier. Um, You know, it's painful to watch a woman caught and torn in the gears of a man's progress to watch the meaning of her name change into a thing that happened to her once. And again, like this essay was also just interesting for me to revisit now because now we are at a time where Justice Kavanaugh has become kind of the median justice on the Supreme Court and people just talk about him as the court's new median justice and the person to whom you have to pitch your arguments if you want to have any reasonable prospect of success. And, you know, that's his story. It's become completely unmoored from, you know, what Dr. Blasey Ford experienced and like still experienced and it's, again, just, like, really wild to revisit what was, like, a very, um, uh, like, significant event in, like, many people's lives, including mine, just to, like, see that testimony play out and then now see Justice Kavanaugh just, like, on the court being treated as, you know, the court's new media and justice. And, I mean, that was a very raw and emotional time for me as well. So I'm glad that we were both uh, <laughs> making eye contact, as it were, uh, through the course of that 
But yeah, no, it, it is very strange. I think part of the advantage and disadvantage of writing daily is that you don't think, oh, in, like how will the meaning of this have changed over the course of a few years? And so now it's just like, he's been able to get the meaning of his name to change that median court justice. And he's able to keep going on. And now he's just like a thing that is a fact, uh, and an unpleasant fact, but he's on the court and he's just, you, you have to use the court. So it's, it's a strange dynamic where like things that shouldn't be the case are the case, but that's often a dynamic of the sort of current administration where you're just like, well, this is happening. The only way out is through, I guess. Right. Like the train is truly not going to stop. Um, uh, and on the note of just like making eye contact, like on a personal note, like your commentary was truly a lifesaver for me on this. Cause like at the time I was visiting at another school in a Supreme Court litigation clinic and the Blasey Ford hearings happened the week I started that job and was like giving an introduction to students about litigating at the Supreme Court and like trying to, you know, encourage them to pursue Supreme Court litigation. And I just felt constantly like I was, you know, starting off on my back feet. I had no idea what to do. And so it was really wonderful to have your commentary at the time. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> it was it just a week. It felt like so much more than a week. It felt like, a, as usual, sort of the dilation of time. But I mean, yeah, I guess these sort of watershed moments feel longer and you have more memories clustered around them than you do yeah. for sort of the days on which nothing happened. Right, like something's usually happening. Even like pandemic time, happens. I don't know. Right, days, weeks, months, I have no it's idea. All run together. But I can it remember all... like discreet, you know, where I was, what I was thinking, what I was doing during that entire week of testimony. Yeah. Another theme in the book um, is is crisis and and how government officials respond to various crises or don't respond as the case might be. And there's one essay, um, Trump's budget makes perfect sense and will fix America and I will tell you why. Um, and here you write, um, but how will I survive on this budget? You may be wondering, I am a human child, not a costly fighter jet. You may not survive, but that is because you are soft and weak. And again, that sort of captures it. Um, there, there are other crises that you opine about, um, one in which you imagine the Republicans as a large spider slowly devours them. If this were a crisis, something would be done by someone, a hero would emerge. If there were an occasion, I would be rising to it. And all of this seems sort of tailor-made for this particular moment where we're in the middle of the pandemic and we would like someone to come and rescue us from the spider that is slowly devouring us, but yet no hero has risen to the occasion. It is funny because sort of things like a pandemic or even, you know, the word coup, all of these things are ideas that you all, at least I used to picture as like, well, if something that alarming were going on, it would be very clearly labeled and there would be flags and signs of all kinds. And you would turn on the TV and the TV would say, we're in the midst of this very specific crisis and the world is different now and you can make heroic choices. And in fact, it's just sort of another thing that you slide into and it sort of, it slowly escalates. One day Scott Prue is rubbing lotion on himself and then the next day, you know, Rudy's running around from state to state spreading COVID and misinformation. And so I, I do think you forget that it's usually just sort of a Tuesday when this kind of a thing is going on and they're not saying, ah, yes, here's the choices. I feel like the advantage of sort of storytelling in fiction is like all the choices are clearly labeled and you know, oh, this is a turning point and this isn't. And instead it's just sort of like, ah, well, we have to get through this week. But in the course of the week that you're just getting through, you know, lives are being lost 
and horrors are being perpetrated. And uh, l- look at my lovely passive sentence construction. See, now I'm noticing myself doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Most of your essays are about politics and the players who kind of make up our national landscape. Um, and you don't always or like often write about the court, even though a number of your essays about you know gun control laws or Justice Kavanaugh touch on topics that are in the Supreme Court wheelhouse. So why have you just focused more on kind of our other governing institutions? Just because there's been so much chaos concentrated in them. I, I know the court also has, <laughs> has its chaos. Uh, but, yeah, oversight. That's judicial oversight. <laughs> I was just about to say, <laughs> like, what can we do to convince you to write about the Supreme Court more? We promise there is a lot of material to work with. <laughs> well, no, I always feel bad because I'm the one of my friends. Like, not, I mean, like, as a person who lives in D.C., I feel like statistically, like, six of your friends are lawyers. Like, you're, you have to get, like, a little card and it's stamped. And it's like, here are your lawyer friends. You now have six of them. Your friend Josh, who didn't used to be a lawyer, is a lawyer now. Your friend who you didn't used to, she used to be your funny friend and now she's a tax attorney. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like all your friends get handed back to you and they're lawyers. And so I'm like, well, I, I, I you say this as though it were bad. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. But I'm all, it also makes me be like, I'm the English major with the classics minor. That's not a law degree. That's something different. But then again, whenever I do actually wind up reading like a, an opinion, I'm just like, oh, this is absolutely as bananas as most parts no, of right, exactly. government are. Yeah, There's no, so much stuff here that relates to what you talk about. I mean, like there were like the oral arguments where Justice Sotomayor get, kept getting talked over or the time where they skipped over Justice Breyer altogether. I mean, like that was sort of a classic moment of just cacophony that you could have like captured. I mean, we want you on this beat. We want like, <laughs> like, you like take your elbows and like shove Robert Barnes yeah, out of the way right. and just get in there. To, like this, this is your moment. Like there's so much good stuff in here, right? Yeah, Don't you no, think? No, there's tons. And that's not, you didn't even mention the, the mystery flush. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Flushgate. We we talked about Flushgate a lot. We yeah, no, that was. I, I feel like there's been thorough coverage, but but yeah, just one of the many. But not your coverage, week. not your trenchant coverage. Exactly. You could have brought a, a different slant to Flushgate, I think. You know, if only to entice you further on the interruptions that Melissa was mentioning, where the chief justice tried to call on Justice Sotomayor and Justice Alito just kept talking. Um, we can play a clip for our listeners of that here. Justice Sotomayor? If I can, if I can move on to my second, my second point. Uh, I want to give you uh, six categories of people and ask you to answer yes or no to the extent you can, whether you think each of these uh, people in each of these categories must be counted for apportionment purposes. That person is a resident like any other undocumented person. Justice Sotomayor? Uh, Justice Sotomayor? Um, We polled our listeners about what this should be called. Should it be called Sam-splaining or toxic masculino? And are these acceptable puns, according to the pun queen? I like both of them. I feel like toxic, toxic masculino, there's a couple of syllables off there, but it also has like a more judicial ring to it. So I think I like it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's also what our listeners selected. So they can feel extremely validated by their choices. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Missouri legislators said the quiet part out loud with their total abortion ban. Quote, Almighty God is the author of life, end quote. They also said, quote, God doesn't give us a choice in this area. He is the creator of life. 
Plus, quote, from the biblical side of it, life does occur at the point of conception, end quote. Religious extremists are forcing all of us to live by their beliefs, as in the Alabama IVF case. Americans United for Separation of Church and State exists to stop this kind of abuse. On the eve of the 50th anniversary of Roe, Americans United and their allies sued Missouri, representing 14 clergy from seven different denominations. AU's lawsuit challenges Missouri's abortion bans as a violation of the separation of church and state. AU's guiding light is freedom without favor, equality without exception. AU works with partners on all sides of the aisle, of all religions and none, to ensure the wall between church and state stands strong for all. Keep up with this ongoing case at au.org. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So you also have a side hustle. Um, in addition to writing these columns for the Washington Post, you also host a trivia hour, a weekly trivia hour for the Washington Post on Instagram. Yes? Well, I, I periodically guest host it. Uh, okay. It, it only feels like an hour. It's, it's, it's theoretically just 15 minutes. <laughs> but I do enjoy trivia very much. You like trivia, yes? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. How much? That's the concession <laughs> Melissa wanted. <Yes. laughs> a great deal. <laughs> Same. I, I love trivia. And for the last two years, I've been wanting to incorporate into this podcast a Supreme Court trivia segment, and no one will let me do this. And the fact that you are here has finally given us an opportunity to do that. So would you like to play SCOTUS trivia with us? I'm scared, but I'm ready. <laughs> Yes. You're ready. Okay. okay. I think you got it. Okay. You're going to play against Leah. Okay. Oh, no. Well, oh. come on. Yeah, this is not. Uh, this is okay. stacked. All right. All right. Ready? Okay. So, some okay. How about we I, both I get so- to answer and this is a team? Okay, be a how team. About, how about you like, ask the questions, we try to answer them, and our about- listeners see if they can answer the questions before we do. They can yeah, play I'll along. I'll say okay. what I think the answer is, and then you'll say what the right answer is. <laughs> We can do it however you want. I'm just so excited to finally get to do this because literally I've been waiting for two years and no, like, and, and notice we had, Kate isn't even here. We had to get Kate out of the way for me to be able to do this. She's really been an obstacle to this. Okay. All right. Question number one. This person is the only president 
to also serve as Chief Justice of the United States. Taft! <laughs> yes! I knew that one. Okay. All right. So it was. William Howard Taft is the only person to have served both as president and as Chief Justice of the United States. Second question, twist. Taft was the only person to serve as both president and chief justice, but he was not the only presidential candidate to also serve on the Supreme Court. What presidential hopeful was also a justice, even though he was never president? Ooh. All right. Plot twist, yes. Leah, do you know? It's Field. I only know this from my habeas paper. He was a presidential candidate, the author of um, Che Champagne. No. He was a candidate uh, for the Democratic nomination for president. Okay. Um, so I actually needed someone who was the actual nominee. Oh. So that may be uh, where we are okay. having the problem. So the, the correct answer that I was seeking, though, I understand Leah was really getting into the weeds here <laughs> with her arcane knowledge of California electoral politics. Um, the correct answer that I was seeking was Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. Mm. So he was. An oh, nominee. Charles um, Evans Hughes. Dang it. I did. I, I've heard that. You knew that. <laughs> you knew that. Yeah. Here's another one. This one, this one I think you He was really can... boring, I think. Yes. I mean, according to Alice Roosevelt, but she thought everyone was boring. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're Alice Roosevelt, everyone is boring. Alice Roosevelt was, yeah, she was, she was getting things done. Okay. Who was the only justice to also serve as Secretary of State? Marshall? Yes! Yeah, that was it. That was good. 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 John Marshall. That was good. Okay. Here's another one. This is also, this is more arcane. Who are the only two justices to have been featured on American currency? Salmon P. Chase? No, he wasn't a justice. Really? Really? Salmon P. Chase? (laughs) Yes, that was one. That was one. He was on the $10,000 bill. I knew that. $10,000 bill. We did have it. And it had Salmon P. Chase on it. Um, That was it. And there's one more. Marshall. Yes, on what bill? God, I don't know. The five hundred dollar okay. bill. <laughs> we had a five hundred dollar right, bill. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> These bills are no longer in circulation, but those are the only two justices to have ever been featured on American currency. Okay, this hey, one's go super team. easy. Good, you were very good together. Which president threatened to pack the court with his chosen appointees? FDR. Okay, that's easy. All right. Um, also easy. Who was the first woman to be appointed to the court? Sandra Day O'Connor. Perfect. Okay, now it gets harder. Who was the first justice whose swearing-in ceremony was televised? Mm. Rehnquist? Nope. Am I too late or too early? Too early. Mm. I want to say it was Roberts. Or Sotomayor? No. Oh wait, it was Sonia. It was Sonia Sotomayor on hey. August eighth, two thousand nine. It was the first one to be televised. All right. I, I this remember is like the I image of the chief being sworn in on the Lincoln Bible that you know Tanya had used. So I, I guess that, but I guess that wasn't actually televised. There were just pictures. I just play the hits. I don't. Okay. I don't write the history. <laughs> like, it's all fine. Last question. There have been a number of current justices who have also clerked for the court. Elena Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh. But who is the only current justice to serve as a member of the Supreme Court alongside the justice for whom he clerked? Well, the he really narrows it down. (laughs) Well, I mean, it is the Supreme Court. (laughs) 
I'm going to say Alito. But I could be... Alito no, did not get a Supreme not, Court clerkship because, oh. unfortunately, his charming personality did not win over any of the justices. It was Neil we don't actually. We, we actually oh, don't know that. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, I had to fit that in. I had to fit that in. Um, that is wild speculation. <laughs> we don't actually I, don't, I have no inside knowledge about why the Supreme Court justices did not hire Samuel Alito. I'm sure he was a super charming law student. You are very good at the Supreme Court trivia. This is very, very good. Some of these were really esoteric. I am especially impressed about the salmon peaches. You really pulled yeah. that out of your back pocket. That was like, I mean, it's all about the salmons, baby. That was great. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, so, Oh, man. Yeah, I'm emotionally exhausted but thrilled. Yeah. So you can use any of those on your WAPO yeah. trivia night if you want to. Um, I should use I, all of those. I should I'll also get back on the trivia night. I think they've had like they were cycling away. I I don't know what the deal is with it. Well, this is a pandemic. So that people a co- need amusement. Yeah, I've done the trivia night and I've gotten a bunch of them right, and I never won anything. Oh no! I know, I know. I'm just like letting you know that. Like I actually got a bunch of right, I, like on a number of occasions, like a hundred percent. Speaking never won of grievance anything. campaigns and grievance being the tone of the movement, no. <laughs> I won and like I was robbed. (laughs) This is oppression. This is oppression. Denying people Supreme Court seats. Yeah, no, you need to follow follow the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Melissa Carone is going to plead my case at a hearing in Michigan. She's going to tell everyone. I'm sure she'll do a great job. Melissa for Melissa. Yep. (laughs) Um, all right. So uh, that's probably all we have time for. Um, but uh, thank you, Alexandra, so much for joining us. Oh, this was a blast. Thank you for having me. And your book, Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why, is available as the perfect holiday gift for all the Cassandras in your life. Show them that they are seen, that they're not alone. This is a great book and it fits in a stocking. It actually literally fits in a stocking. So yeah, yeah, stretchy, you can get it. Stretchy wide stocking, but yeah. If a stocking sure. is appropriately sized. Exactly. Um, yeah, it depends on the stocking. Everyone should also, of course, check out Alexandra's columns in the Washington Post um, and catch her on Instagram when she is allowed to guest host uh, the Washington yes. Post Trivia Night. Thank you to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thank you to Eddie Cooper for making our music. And you can support the show by becoming a Glow subscriber at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.